Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. She's a global speaker, sales expert, and best-selling author. It's Jane Powers. How are you doing today, Jane? I'm doing fabulous now that I'm on with you. Thank you for coming on the show. We're excited to hear all about your Rise to the Challenge. What we like to do first is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up. Oh boy, that is a long story and I hope you all buckle up because I have been, I'm older than maybe what most would imagine, but that may not determine what I've been through. I think I've been, I have been through more in my lifetime by the age of 20 than most. Unfortunately, I don't brag about that. I wish it were different, but just to introduce myself, I'm Jane Powers. I am a speaking and sales coach. I am known best for my intromercial which is a ditching of your old-fashioned elevator pitch. So I can talk about that later. But I am originally from Chicago, and I currently live in Phoenix, Arizona. I like to say Chicago because it just sounds a bit cooler. I'm actually from Naperville. Naperville is a suburb, like a far suburb outside of Chicago. But I, I follow it up by saying I did hang out on the south side of Chicago quite a bit. So, But, you know... Chicago, you just, people get a little more intimidating because it's a big city. So Naperville does not do that to uh, anyone. But nonetheless, I started out, I was born and raised in the Chicagoland area. I went from working in the prisons, drug and alcohol treatment centers. I was a counselor and interventionist in the world of sexual abuse and trauma. So I have been working the front lines from the front lines, I decided, what a great idea. I should make some money. And I went into the employment industry. I started out in the office, but uh, I was like a caged animal. I have a lot of energy and I did not like being in an office. And unfortunately, I have authority figure issues. So probably I have been fired more than collectively all of your listeners put together. (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you. I, I, I sometimes I beat them to the punch. They would have a meeting and they'd say, hey, we've got a meeting at at 445 on Friday. That to me is an obvious uh, writing on the wall of what's going to happen. So I, I moved into the employment industry. And from there, I was a turnaround specialist. So I went into operations that were losing hundreds of thousands of dollars and they would ask me to make them profitable. They told me I could do anything I, ch- I chose. I could fire, I could hire, I could do whatever I wanted. But I was young and I had a very low, I mean, I just was an, I, I was a nice person. I think I might still be, I don't know. But I was too nice. I didn't want to fire anybody. So I created a system that would help people look at their strengths, capitalize on that. And then we'd all work together to make money. So my claim to fame is I was a turnaround specialist and did not fire except one person. I ended up having to let one person go out of the multiple branches I was part of. Anyhow, I made a stop in Denver, turned profits around 240% in 11 months. And they asked me, where else do you want to go? My dream since I was in high school was to go to ASU, Arizona State University, because I played basketball. And I, I thought their colors would look so good on me. <laughs> I don't even know. I didn't even care what I had to study. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. I don't even know what my degree was in. But truly, I wanted to be in Arizona because I took a tour of the Grand Canyon on mules, where you ride down to the bottom of the canyon on mules. That was epic. And I thought, I want to live here. So the company moved me down to Arizona. And that was gosh, over 20 years ago. And I've had, let me tell Alex, I've had 25 career adjustments in my lifetime. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) That's a lot in a short while, in that kind kind of amount of time, because I'm like one of those, I'm like, I am I gonna do this forever? I'm ready for that next step. But it's always, it's one of those journeys people go on, like they they sometimes enjoy that change of pace and the different activity or the different things that they do. Yeah. You know, it was fun. The company that I worked with, Charlie Segrist was the owner. He has since passed away. Amazing man. But I worked at that company 
for 11 years. I have been nowhere for 11 years except in this body. Like I have never been that anywhere that long in my lifetime. But what the president of the company would say to the higher ups, don't anybody manager, leave her alone, let her go make us money. Do not, do not even talk to her because I had a, I had a unique way of doing what I did and he was smart. I made him, I made him millions of dollars. He was a smart man and he took care of me very well. And I took care of his business very well. So I found myself, that's where my sales background, background came from. But all along, I've been a professional speaker. I started right out of college, my first audience, 200 juvenile delinquents. It was a very attentive crowd. <laughs> I was scared to death. I was early 20s and I had no self-esteem. I had, I had no clue how to connect and capture this audience's attention. So I got very creative, was able to win them over in about 10 seconds. And once I realized the difference I could make standing in front of an audience now you now as you can tell you can't shut me up so (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned earlier that authority figures were a hard thing for you growing up was that always the case where you didn't have that person that you could be that authority figure for you or were you always like kind of rebellious towards those figures great question you know i i was not outwardly rebellious. I was, as you know, Eddie Haskell, right? On <laughs> Leave it to Beaver. Eddie was a menace behind the scenes, but in front of the adults, he was this, they're like, oh, it couldn't be Eddie Haskell. No way. They would call me in to the office, the principal, whomever, the dean, and they would ask the question, you know, Jane, who, who did that? And I'd be like, I don't know, but I'll keep my eyes and ears open. It was me. <laughs> I was the one causing all the problems. I was, I was very trustworthy. If I could respect, if I had respect for the authority figure, if I had respect and they proved themselves worthy of my trust and respect, I was absolutely model citizen. But if someone breached my trust or breached my level of respect, I, it, it was impossible for me to move beyond that. It was impossible. And that comes from, you know, I, I grew up in a complicated family. I like, to, I like to describe it that way. Almost every statistic occurred in my family. And what I knew in my family growing up is I did not have a choice. I did not have power. I did not have control. Life was dictated by the adults in the family and the one being the the main authority figure obviously was my father and he was taking liberties with his children that just are quite frankly illegal at this time but you know back when I was growing up it was it was more don't ask don't tell it was you keep those secrets and you smile in the world so I learned to go out in the world I was just talking to somebody the other day because you know there's individuals that you see they become doormats or they become almost the pawn in someone's chess game. And I was laughing and I said, God, I'm so glad that I grew up angry. Like, I'm so glad because I I, I didn't allow, in certain situations, I would not allow myself to be taken advantage of. So my quick knee-jerk reaction was always preservation or protect the perimeter. Mm -hmm. So I had a quick knee-jerk reaction that would posture myself as this tough person not willing to put up with anything. It was a great front because inside I was scared to death of everything. And I knew that if I could puff up and posture, I would not be eaten alive by the world. Mm -hmm. And that was my greatest fear was being eaten alive by the world because I had been eaten alive by my family in so many different ways. So I look at you know, how does that translate? Some submit too much to authority. And I never was, I would never allow myself to become 
too far out of control. And if I felt someone was controlling me and <laughs> I wasn't all that skillful, maybe when I was younger, I probably, I, I, I know I had a mouth on me. And, but I tell you, I made more money for companies and they would struggle to keep me under wraps and allow me to be profitable at the same time. So they would have a hard time going, we can't put up with this attitude, even though it didn't look like belligerent, it was resistant to some of the antiquated methods or the lackluster methods that they wanted to grow their business. And I would voice my opinion. And I think the best thing that happened from all that, it forced me, absolutely forced me to be an entrepreneur. Never wanted to be one. I think that kind of situation, it kind of goes with like micromanaging in a way. If some people can look at it with a business where I've been in that situation where I've been micromanaged and I feel that you can't get the best work out of me because let me show you what I can do. And like, you, you have me in this position. So obviously you trust me. If you don't trust me, give me like the set of what the expectations are and let me roam free with it. But the more you're micromanaging me, the more I'm going to get frustrated. And then how is that going to be with like the atmosphere and everything? So that's how you mentioned that. When you talked about going out into the world and you had to keep those secrets, were you, was it hard for you to not be able to voice your opinion to like your friends or other people so that they knew what was going on in your life? It, it's so interesting you say that. So uh, in, in May, I've got my book coming out. So my second book, my first one was the business book because everybody's like, oh, you're a professional speaker. Don't you have a book? And I'm like, no. And they're like, you need a book. And I'm like, well, I've done very well without one. So I thought, what the heck? I'll write my business book. But the real book that I've wanted to write since I've been in my 20s, early, early 20s, is Revealing the Missing Piece. And it's P-E-A-C-E. -E. And essentially, that is a guide, a book for survivors of trauma, you know, emphasizing more of the sexual abuse, which I lived through. But it is, uh, people are reading it now to pre-launch and they're, these people are like, I was never abused in that way, but oh my gosh, I had a death or I moved a number of times. The book is seemingly speaking to the masses that have lived through trauma. And I think COVID is probably one of our number one traumas that has triggered unrealized PTSD. Like you don't have to be a Vietnam vet. You don't have to be a Afghanistan. You don't have to be a, a vet of any, you know, combat to have PTSD, you can grow up in a crappy situation or you could have, you know, anything. So the book is coming out and in the book, it's interesting. When I started growing and realizing, cause I had, I'm the youngest of seven and I knew no, I knew nothing different in growing up. I knew nothing except this was the way of the world. I knew when the, when the lights went out, and darkness came, bad things happen. And it may not have just been in the darkness. It could have been the day or night or out wherever. And I knew this was how our family operated. This was how the world went. And there were times in the situations where, you know, I didn't think my sister was going to make it through this, um, you know, the trauma of all of it. So I would volunteer. I would take one for her because I thought, my God, she will be dead. I knew there was an innate strength in me that I knew once I could free myself from this family, I could save my mother and I could save myself. That was, that was my belief from when, I mean, as young as I can remember, I'm like, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to be somebody. That was my commitment to myself. So I played the game. I didn't understand why I felt crazy inside. It, it was, it's an interesting concept. And I remember saying to my father one time, I said, I, I think I'm going crazy. <laughs> I think I need to see a psychiatrist. I, I didn't, you know, and he looked, he goes, oh, you're fine. I thought, well, no wonder he didn't want me talking to anybody because they may have looked at me and said, hey, you know, what secret would you love to tell? Mm -hmm. So I went through the world. I played sports, every sport you can imagine. I was involved in just about everything I possibly could be to be away from the house. And 
after I graduated, I went to college and played basketball, played, you know, did everything. And then when I started processing my past, I went back and interviewed my friends and my teachers and my coaches because I wanted to understand how did I run that long under the radar? Now, unfortunately, this was back in the 70s and 80s. And that wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a big, um, there weren't resources. There wasn't the Me Too movement. There was nothing. People just turned a blind eye. They didn't ask questions. They thought, oh, they're just acting out or Jane's just tired all the time at school. So I went back and spoke to my coaches and teachers and they were like, oh, you smiled all the time. You were helpful. You were joy to be around. You were determined. You were dedicated. Raving reviews. And then I would share with them that one out of three women by the age of 18 had been sexually abused to some degree and one out of four boys. And I said, and I'm one out of three. Every one of them sat there and went, are you kidding me? And I said, let me teach you some of the signs and symptoms so that you can look and ask the right questions to the right people. So I began at that point, I began working as an interventionist and doing prevention work in the world of sexual abuse. So I went out and decided to start training kids on how to find their voice and how to speak up. And I had been, gosh, this is uh, when I went and confronted, was going to confront my one brother. Uh, he had, you know, he threatened my life. He's a hunter and he was naming all the guns. He was going to come over and shoot me. And I was terrified. I was terrified. So I disappeared from my family for about five years. And I was invited to be on the Oprah Winfrey show in the audience, not on the panel, in the audience. And she announced when she brought the show on and said, everyone in our studio audience has been sexually abused. Well, they didn't tell anyone they were going to say that and share that. And I remember a young man sitting next to me and he about got sick. And I said, you okay? And he said, my family does not know. And if they see me on this show, this is the end of my life. It was it was so tragic. It was so terrible. And I told him, get up and leave. I said, just leave. Well, they wouldn't let you. And for me, that was, again, a violation of individuals. But long story short, the, they called me to be on the show. And I said, not in your wildest dreams. And we spent about an hour and a half. I spent an hour and a half with the directors and producers to teach them how to deal with individuals who have been abused. And they begged me, they're like, please watch the show. Oprah will say and use everything you did. And it was so sweet because I watched the show and she used a number of phrases that I had created for uh, survivors. But anyhow, once I did that, I, I recorded the show and I went home and watched it. And I was in hiding from my family. And uh, if they didn't pan that camera on me, which felt like about an hour it was probably only seconds, but all I saw was my face once they said, everybody's been abused. <laughs> and I went, oh no, that's when the family started searching for me. And I thought, you know what? This is the time that I need to stand in my power. I have just in front of millions disclosed my life. My story is not who I am. My story is not my future. My story is what I create it to be. And I went back, I confronted my father, I confronted the family, and I made a stance in my life to never be silent again, to find my voice. In my voice is my power. In my power, I can do anything. So I, I, I never now, never do I apologize for who I am, how I show up, because I hid that for very long. I hid it forever. I was the invisible kid. I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to be heard. And then they put me on stage and I went, oh no, people are looking at me. Oh my God. I had to figure out very quickly what skill set to bring out. And turns out I'm not too bad. It turns out I did a pretty good job and I've been doing it for over 30 years. So. <laughs> 
when you talk about the different activities and being able to use that as an escape, what is the big thing those activities taught you about yourself? With uh, that, and I tell people when I was interviewed, when I would do um, running profit centers and I would interview anybody who said they were an athlete, they went to the top of my list. There is a commitment, there is a discipline, there is a sacrifice, there is a, a healthy selfishness when it comes to sports. There is a drive and a dedication that is second to none. It becomes that driving force. I know for me, I was a point guard. And I know I look pretty tall on this recording here, but I am all of 5'4". I think I said I was 5'5 five five back in college because it just looked better on the program because they're thinking I'll eat that one alive at 5'4". But I'm pretty small. But I have an attitude that makes me 10 feet tall. And I learned as I was playing, you cannot let anyone see that weakness and succumb to the weakness. I had trouble. I had trouble going to my left. I had trouble going to my left. Most everybody does. They have trouble going to their left. And I didn't dedicate as much time as I should have going to my left in basketball. And if anyone saw that in my face, in my attitude, like, oh, crap, don't make me go left. They would have made me go left all day long. Mm -hmm. So I was able to stand in the commitment that I can go any direction and I can go over, under, I can go around you. And then I gained the respect. I was also a team leader. I ran the place. I made things happen. And when I saw the results of what I did and how I made things happen, that's what allowed me to, to just move forward and command my business, everything that I've ever done. And, and I played ice hockey that again, I was probably the number one assister in in ice hockey, if I scored, it might have been by accident most of the time. <laughs> you talked about how you were running the plays, and we touched on the topic of authority figures. Were you trying to kind of overcome that adversity and be that authority figure for that team so people could look up to you and you had kind of that control over what was going to happen for that play? I don't know if I consciously thought that, but I do consciously think that now. <laughs> I, I think the aspect of competition, the, the, uh, my entire, I'm telling you, my entire family tree, I think everyone pops out of the womb competing for something. Every one of us. I, I know out of seven of us, I was the only one that went to college. Right out of high school, I went right into college. And again, I confess, it was to play basketball. I wanted to continue playing basketball. I happened to get a degree at the same time. But each one of my siblings has been very successful. They've started, the, and believe it or not, out of all of them, they are, the majority of them are entrepreneurs. One is, uh, one I don't think has to work. She's got a very nice situation. But the rest of them, very driven. My one sister owns three Dairy Queens. My one sister owns a medical supply company. My brother owned a radiation, uh, radiator company and sold it for a, a very good profit. My one um, other, he was a karate, had his own karate studio. So everybody had the mind of an entrepreneur. I never wanted to be one because I believe my father was one who encouraged, you know, you got to work, you got to find a good job, you got to settle down. And, and so looking at sports, it was more about the competition it was more about overcoming that internal lack or deprivation that if I could, if I could accomplish something and feel powerful at that one thing, then it would feed into everything else I did. Cause I wasn't that great of a student. I, you know, I, I didn't, I had too much space rented in my mind to say, you may not make it through the night, and that was occupying most of my brain, but my physical body could play sports without even thinking. It was a natural for me, but I, I didn't do all that great. And I didn't, I really didn't, you know, invest the time and effort into school. I was though, I'm probably the best cheater on the planet. <laughs> I was so good at figuring out the different copies, like there would be a test a, B, C, and D. And I'd look at the person, Peggy Weezer. I used to be woven. 
we sat next to each other. Peggy was so smart. I'd look, I'd go, okay, I know what one she is and I'd follow along. Peggy and I both got great grades. <laughs> so, you know, for me, it was about survival of the fittest. And I didn't, you know, in my family, we weren't, it wasn't a, nobody pushed you. My dad was so cheap, so cheap. He didn't want to pay for our college. So why would he encourage us to go to college? I mean, he didn't even pay for my college. I ended up with a bill at the end of my, when I graduated. And, and, and so I look and I think everything I did in sports, in my opinion, allowed me to be who I am today. And quite frankly, I learned everything I know about business from playing basketball with men. I came out of college and, and, and again, remember I played division one. So we, I was playing against some big girls and I would mix it up. And then I'd play in leagues and they'd be like, ow, and they, oh, you're so rough. And I'm thinking, oh, come on. <laughs> so they'd hate you for a lifetime. They'd be like, remember the time you followed me like four years ago? I'm like, okay. Well, I decided I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go play with men. You guys are a strange breed. I dig you. But you're just a street. I go, I play basketball. I will beat the crap out of these guys. Flagrant fouls. I will hit in vulnerable areas. I'll say whatever I want. And afterwards, these guys are like, uh, aren't you going out to lunch with us? And I'm like, you don't hate me? And they're like, I don't get it. What does that even mean? I'm like, never mind. Sure. Because I, play, I played hockey with women and they would hate me because I would knock them down. And I'm like, we're playing hockey. It's not, I mean, this is what you do. So I, I like to, I, I, I like to attribute my success to literally understanding how to be fully transparent, authentic, and in your own vulnerability is your power. And I used to hate that saying. I, I had, I had somebody who would, a therapist who would tell me that in your vulnerability is your power. I'm like, that's dumb. And I don't even know what it means, but, <laughs> but truth be told, if we're hiding something there, someone's going to find out. Oh yeah. They always find out. And then you are massively vulnerable. So I'm one, I just tell everything. Like, there, there is no secret. And people are like, Ooh, what if someone finds out this? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure everybody knows it's either in my book or I've said it from stage a hundred times. Yep. So in your vulnerability is tell the truth, tell the truth quickly and stand firm in who you are and how you live your life. Well, it's like any of those like CSI shows or even in general, it's like when people are lying and not telling the truth and stuff and not being open it, it makes it harder on them even more because each day they're waiting until someone <laughs> figures it out. And over the years, I have been in that situation where I was like, I'm not going to reveal stuff. But then I felt a lot better when I'm just being an open book. So I always tell like friends and family, I'm like, just ask me, I'll answer. Yeah. If I don't want to answer it, I'll be upfront and say, I don't want to answer this question. But you feel so much better. And I think nowadays with social media and stuff I think people use that as a coping mechanism as a way to reveal stuff instead of just being open with people like they have to hide behind a photo or hide behind a video and back then people didn't you guys didn't have social media like that you guys had to actually have the conversation with each other yeah now we had dial up all right <laughs> <laughs> What are those like rot rotary phones or something <laughs> or the, the Zach Morris phones where it's like a huge thing. I had, I was, I had um, a young kid. He was three years old when I, we went to a garage sale and it, there was a rotary phone there. And he's like, what is this thing? <laughs> I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm thinking the last time I, I think it's been so, I only remember like the cords, like the phone hangs on your wall. Oh, oh yeah. It just like, yep. you can, it, that's your extension and you can't just walk into the other room. <laughs> you talk, during your college experience, did you enjoy wearing those colors that you were so fascinated about? Oh, I 
well, I didn't get to ASU. So that was, so my first was, it's funny. It was black and red. I was a Husky. I was a Husky in high school, orange and blue. And then I went to Northern Illinois University and they were black and red. To this day, I can't wear black and red. Isn't that funny? Just not a, not a color scheme. Then I got recruited. I actually, um, my sophomore year, after my sophomore year, I was a walk-on my freshman year. My sophomore year, uh, Rita Horky came in and said, anyone without a scholarship, you are dead to me. And I'm like, let me show you how I can play. And she said, absolutely not. We only want. And I said, then give me some money. And she said, nope, we don't have funding for that. She ended up, she was actually, she actually slapped a few of the players. So I think I uh, dodged a bullet. So I decided this is interesting. And this was back pre-internet. Keep in mind, this was back in the early 80s. And I went in and I thought, okay, I still want to play. How do I go and find someone to pay for me? So I I don't know if I picked up a phone book. I don't know how I found it. And I started calling colleges. And I started saying, I'd like to come audition. Here's what, here are some of my stats. Here's what I can do. And I started traveling around and I ended up at College of St. Francis, which is in Joliet, Illinois. Most people know it from the prison there, but I ended up, now it's university because it grew like crazy. And I ended up going in, trying out. They gave me they gave me a scholarship. And then you're not going to believe this. My colors were brown and gold. Oh, oh, it was just ugly. It didn't even look good on me. That's all I can say. But I made the best of it. And and what was wonderful, though, because at NIU, I, I, I didn't have enough confidence to be able to hold my own towards the senior who, God, she was only five, three, but man, she was a shit brick house. But nonetheless, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't hold my own up against her and she wasn't going anywhere. So what I loved is when I transferred, got a scholarship, I, I started, I, I actually, I don't even think I rode the bench for more than a minute, except when my coach, coach Ann Hope, I think was her name. She realized that if she didn't start me, just for like a minute and a half, I would be so mad that when she put me out on the court, I would go, I would go absolutely nuts and score and run this team. And she's like, you win, you win our games every time I sit you on the bench. And it didn't matter if I knew that or not, I was still mad because I get all jacked up and I'm like, come on. (laughs) You know, you mentioned the whole, you don't wear the colors of your team. And I'm thinking to myself, because my colors were black and gold. I don't think I own one piece of black and gold, except for like the t-shirts that they gave me. And I'm thinking, that's so interesting. Because it's like, usually like with colleges and stuff, everyone's like bleeding those colors and stuff. Like, yeah. All for it. I get out of college and I'm kind of like, I'm ready to move on and stuff. <laughs> it's so interesting. That's why I love these conversations. Because like, we mentioned, I asked you a question. You're like, I didn't really think it of this way. And it's always a great like reflection. And yeah, someone else is thinking something similar. And you're like, that goes with me. It kind of goes with how you said your book with where you were writing about your story and how some people were, didn't relate to it, but they could take those traumas that they went through and they could use the same comparison and make them think about those situations. It's and you know that's why and so you what I do is basically I'm a speaking and sales coach so I entrepreneurs hire me to increase their business and grow through articulating their message because most I hate to say this are boring confusing and inconsistent like you listen to me you're like I actually don't know what you do so I work with individuals I create their talk I create their messaging we go through their copy so everything is 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 out there so that people understand what the heck they're saying and many times what ends up happening it's people get lost in their in their story more than serving the audience so for example if i were to tell my story i don't run around telling my story unless it's in my book or unless it's a workshop that is point you know directed towards that I have been speaking for years and what I like to say, and you heard me say that I grew up in a complicated family. What that allows the audience to do is fill in the blank. 
So they get to think, oh yeah, I had that abusive father. I had the alcoholic mother. I had this abuse. I moved a number of times. So whatever your definition of complicated is, that's what I, I like people to fill in the own, their own blanks so that then I can serve them with what they want to do. But if I'm saying, oh, so here's what happened to me. People can't, if they can't relate to my story, they can't relate to me. They, they can't understand to fill in the blanks. So I leave it, I leave it wide open. I leave it wide open. And I hear so many people telling, oh, I want a signature story. I'm going to signature story. And I'm like, your entire talk is weaving in and out of your signature story. You know, it's like going on a date, right? A first date and you're like, okay. So when I was two, all this happened to me. And then three, I can't wait till I get to five. And the person sitting there is like, are you kidding me? Like, oh my, that's what your audience is saying when you're processing your story and telling as a badge of honor. It is your, your, you know, your hero's journey mm -hmm. is when you're saying, okay, had a complicated family and now I have three multi-million dollar businesses I've created. Now people are paying attention. But if I'm like, here's the doom and gloom of my life, people miss the hero's journey beyond the story. So I'm, I'm a big one to say, you know, people don't care about your story. They care about their own story. So tell your story in a way that people go, oh, I get it. You know, I tell a story. It's my orangutan story. That's why I have my orangutan all the time. I tell a story about orangutan and it was, I was the first one to sit down in a spelling bee. When I say that people are going, oh, me too. And, and I talk about, you know, different things that happened throughout my life, vulnerable moments, and people go, oh, my God, it's okay to admit to that. It's okay to say, I'm not that great at spelling either. Then they start to feel, you know, I tell a story where I wanted to be an attorney. That was I, I, my senior year. I know I planned ahead. My senior year of high school, I started thinking, I should probably go to college. Like, this would be a good idea. Get the heck out of home. Do what I want, you know, be free, get an education, play basketball or softball or whatever I wanted. And I went to my father and I said, I am going to be an attorney. And he said, ah, you know, that's for smart kids. And you are not that smart. You're actually somewhat dumb sometimes, but you're a good athlete. Why don't you become a PE major? And what do you think I did? I went and started in PE. Now, I like to say I did not graduate with a, a physical education degree because it just doesn't sound as brilliant as a TR degree, therapeutic recreation. I thought if I told that from stage, people would not think I was smart enough. People would think, oh, you know, PE, we know what that is, or therapeutic recreation. Here's what I have to say. I think it's brilliant to be paid to play. <laughs> so yeah. I thought smarter than the average bear out there. But I think it's a matter of, you know, how do we find avenues to step up on our past rather than finding, you know, the doom and gloom of the story. We want to relate it to our listeners. So the listener goes, Oh my God, I was told I couldn't be this. I wanted to be a doctor. I had, I have one client, I have one client, beautiful woman. And her father would say to her, you, you better find a man. You're too pretty to do anything else. And he put her in beauty pageant after beauty pageant and she would ditch and she would cancel and she would find her way out of them. And that was her channel of abuse. You're too pretty to be smart. And the woman's brilliant. The woman's brilliant. And so uh, we're not what we were told. We are not what happened to us. We are not our stories that we make up. We just have, most of us just have a bad habit of our thinking and our habit of our thinking was set up as we grew up. When your dad said that you were, you were dumb or not smart, where you kind of now like, I'm going to prove you wrong in a way. I'm going to show you what I can do. And so you could not think that I'm what you thought I was. Not right away. Not right away. That happened when, and, and most people would say, can I ask why did you keep going back to your father? 
because later on in life, I, I began speaking and I was part of the Speakers Association and I was hitting stages and I was getting paid to speak. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to be a professional speaker. And in the true form of my late father, he said, well, I, who's going to want to listen to you? Oh. <laughs> I went, crap. And once he said that, I thought, you know what? A lot of people. I, I did put that dream on the shelf for a while because I thought, you know, he's probably right. I don't want to be an entrepreneur. Screw it. I'll just keep having a job. And after he said that, I thought, you know what? I'm falling prey to his brokenness. I'm believing his greatest detriment is a fear of any one of us being more than he was more than I swear I swear to you I grew up my sister told me I was fat dumb and stupid the one right above me because she was chubby and not that bright so she projected and didn't want me to be better than her and she would call me fat dumb and stupid my entire life so anytime I would go to do anything that message would go yeah you're not that bright and then my father you know, would support that by saying, yeah, you're not, you're not bright. And so I began to believe most everything that I was told. So overcoming the pattern of thinking took me that fight. I, I, I took my fight or flight, right? We understand fight or flight. You get into trauma, you get into something, you're like, okay, either fists are up or your <laughs> feet are moving. Mm -hmm. And I happen to be a fighter. I happen to be, I, I don't back down to much of anything. And what I understood is I took my fight and turned it into drive. I utilized that and became obsessed with conquering accomplishments. And I'd look at somebody and I'd go, hmm, I think I could do that. I think I can do better than that. I'm going to give it a try. And that's why I've had so many opportunities in my so many career adjustments. I had the opportunity after I was in title, I went in and it was my 445 meeting on a Friday at a title company. And I gave my notice. It took five people to have a meeting with me to say, I think we're going to let you go. But I didn't. I said, you know, what? I'm going to take the pressure off of each one of you. Here is my resignation. They're like, Whew. and I said, but you're going to pay me for six months. Otherwise, I will be bring legal action because they were doing some things that weren't on the up and up. And they said, excellent. Gave me a check. I went away, got my real estate license. And I thought, OK, I see what people are doing. My first year, I was rookie of the year. Second year, I was top three percent in the state of Arizona. I had the most deals, the highest volume, the highest commission and highest both sides of the deal. How did I do it? I just turned my drive into on my fight into drive. And now there's good news and bad news with that because then you become addicted as I have to more than. I gotta do more than you. I gotta do more than last year. I gotta do more than this last quarter. I've got to do more than. I'm, an, I'm a real estate investor. I've gotta have more homes than I had last year. I've gotta have more. So the drive becomes yet another addiction. Our story is whatever motivates us. My motivation was security. My motivation was having a sense of security. And I have had in the past for my entire life was here today, gone tomorrow. Because in I was 14 years old, I went down to say goodbye to my mother as we all went off to the pool. And I came home and my mother had taken her last breath. They were trying to revive her up in the bedroom and she had been unconscious without oxygen for gosh, I don't even, I don't even know how long, but at 2.31 AM, she had taken her last breath. And at that moment I went, okay, it's you against the world. There is no one that's going to pick up the pieces. There is no one here to save you. My mother was an alcoholic, unfortunately, and, and addicted to Valium the majority of my lifetime. And even though she wasn't, it's funny, there's something when you're, when a parent or someone dies, when you're young, somehow they become saints in their death. Like my mother was not mother of the year. She was literally a falling down drunk. I'd come home. She'd be at the bottom of the steps. 
She would be hallucinated. I, you know, I can go on and on back in the day. I mean, there was no DUIs, but that woman, thank God she didn't kill anyone because she would go to the bar and come home. And once she took her last breath, I was on my own. My father would travel for weeks on end. And what I, this is my, my rationalization is what was replaced my mother was replaced with her wallet sitting on the desk and my father would leave a check for groceries. My sister would come from her town home, take me shopping. And then I would have leftover money for weeks and enough food. So my mentality was this is security. Money is security. Gathering items, whether it's food, whatever it is, this is your sense of security. And I believe to this day, I, I reprogram. I'm constantly rethinking the way I see my addiction to more than. And, and that has been my, my endless work is how do I trust that it won't be here today, gone tomorrow? It, it won't, it won't disappear. Like, you know, my mother took her last breath and went, uh Oh, now what do I do with my life? So, you know, people are like, Oh my God, I got to get it all together before I can launch a business or be, or I can do anything. I'm like, if you're going to wait for that day, you, you ain't never going to launch anything. Cause I can tell you right now, I'm a working pro I'm a masterpiece in progress still still under construction after over 30 years of working on myself. Have you all, have you been able to be open with your kids about your experiences and how have you been as a parent towards them from what you have gone through with your parents growing up? I love that. I love that you, you see me as a mother, a, a very maternal instinct. I hate kids. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> kids, they're just miniature adults and a bigger pain and they're way more dependent. And I claim, (laughs) I I really, I was like, I, I watched, I've got 60, 18, I don't even know, um, nieces and nephews. And then I have a number of great nieces and nephews. Um, and, and I watched as my, my older siblings would all have kids and they were, God, they were all a mess. You know, they were addicted they were abusive. It didn't matter. They, they're just, you know, it was just an interesting um, breed. And I knew from a very young age, I never wanted kids. I thought, you know what? I am not stable and, and strong in myself. How will I raise a kid in this world to be better than I, I could ever be? I, I did not have confidence. So I went through and, and I thought, absolutely not. I will not have kids. I worked with kids. I empowered a number of kids. I saved thousands of kids, literally thousands from abuse. And that was, I did that work for many years. And then when I moved to Arizona, uh, I moved in 1997, I think it was. And about 16 years ago, I did an after school program and I was going to take some kids, get them some school supplies. I felt like, yeah, I should give back to the community. So I took this little family out and got them some stuff. And I dropped him back off at home. And this, this kid came up to me and he's like, I'm Daryl Robinson. I need to know who you are. I need you to how to get in your program. He's going on. And I looked at him. I said, whoa, like you should use those skills for good. He was 10 years old at the time. And I left him a message. I said, hey, you know, I'll get you hooked up with the program. Well, of course, caller ID, he's calling me back and he's like, you know, can you call me between 10 and 1045? And then again, 1130 to 1230, one o'clock to three, 330, gave me all these times, second message, disregard all those messages, that message, call me anytime. And I thought, ah, oh, three days till school, I'll go pick him up. Well, I picked him up and took him to the Walmart. And he kept saying, I only need three uniforms. My granny will clean them. And I said, let me decide what is enough. And and I got him. I I just filled the cart because this kid was so gracious and so amazing. And I took him back home and there was some abuses going on and there was some drugs and different things. And he just turned to me because I took him out to lunch and he goes, 
Is there any way you can just adopt me? And again, remember, I hate kids. And it broke my heart. And I looked at him and I said, no, but I will, I'll be there for you. Well, 16 years later, he's 26 years old. He has unofficially been adopted many years ago. So I pretty much raised him. And it's interesting because people laugh and they're like, oh, we know he's yours. We know there is, I don't have much of a filter from my heart, my head to my mouth. I, I just don't, I say it skillfully and lovingly, but there's not much of a filter. He is probably 10 times my expression. He is 10 times in his communication. He says everything and anything. And sometimes I'm like, okay, at some point you got to learn what you do not say. So he, that kid knows just about everything about me in my life. Um, I just got married, uh, what a year, January 11th last year, and have been with my spouse for four years. Two kids, totally open and expressive. One of the, um, the youngest, who is going to be 18 in August, is trans. And he, a trans son, he is came to, you know, came to this relationship, not being able to express himself, scared of his own shadow. And I said, you know what? The world is going to eat you alive. And I said, if you want to embrace transitioning, you need to, I don't know if I'm going to use this. You need to have balls to be able to do that. And you don't have surgery yet. So let's find them prior to you. And I'll tell you, after probably two years of hanging out with me, he is so confident, so competent. And it, it's, I believe in our voice, I go back to this all the time, in our voice is our power. If you communicate effectively, you stand in your power, no one, no one will knock you down. No one can. So what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish in the next few years personally and professionally? God knows I wish I had an eight ball. I wish I had an eight ball. (laughs) I wish I could shake it. The outlook looks fabulous. You know, it's interesting you ask that because COVID has allowed, and I hate the word pivot. It's like drives me crazy. I'm like, just do what you do best. Just do it better. But what it has, because I personally believe that I created, I caused COVID prior to that. And, and most of our work, we were doing live events. So we'd every six months, we do live events. We close, and this is not to brag, but just to give you an idea of the level of, of commitment and, and what we were generating. We, I think our last two events, 760,000. The last event we did 840,000. That was within six months of each other. And I stopped and I went, you know what? I don't want to work this hard. I don't, it, people all want to have a million dollar business. Everybody wants, oh, I want to be a million. I want a million dollar business. I don't, I don't care who you are. There is a level of sacrifice that always happens. It's wonderful to have all the houses and all the cars and all the cash and all the, but I'll tell you, you, I walked a fine line losing myself in my business and losing myself in my life. So prior to COVID, I'm like, you know what? I want to slow down. Now, I think a lot of people were saying that same thing. Well, all of a sudden COVID hits and it allowed me to go, okay, so we have a mountain home, went up to the mountain home and I said, you know what? It is time to write my book. I wrote the book within a month you know, launching it in May. Uh, We've got a speaking program. We've got a sales program and we've got a couple other things. We've got a software and accounting software program that one of my clients is rolling out that I'm supporting them with that launch. Um, So I look and I go, you know, and then revealing the missing piece is working with survivors. And I'm looking at survivors that are in phase one. So how do I break through the shell of my becoming? How do I become bigger than my past? How do I evolve my story 
in order to evolve my success, whether you're employed or you have your own business. So that's one aspect of the work. And this is not public, but now we're going to be because everybody listens to your podcast and they will all be sharing it. So we have Revealing the Missing Piece, book one. Revealing the Edge is book two. Revealing the Edge is basically, okay, we get it. Your past was a gross inconvenience. Now we've moved through it. Now let's get to the edge of who you know yourself to be and catapult beyond that. So that'll be completely about getting out of your comfort zone and moving into bigger and better and bolder existence of you. The third book is Beyond the Edge. And Beyond the Edge is essentially saying, I will not apologize for who I am. And it is going to be focused, believe it or not, sex and success. They go hand in hand. They are absolutely the divine intervention of your story is to express yourself fully. It doesn't have to be having sex, but it's your sexual, sensual self, man, woman, trans, I do not care. It is how do you embrace that seductive side of you and and boldly step into success. We're in the scoop on this show. Yeah, we're doing it. You're the only one. You're the only one who knows that. That's our top secret. We're launching it. And and truth be told, because we started experimenting with that, started asking, doing some market research. And believe it or not, do you know who comes to us the most for that work? Men. Interesting. We have so many men that are like, yep, I'm in. I'm working with you. It is a huge component of their the resistance to open to more. And that's everybody. Because, you know, we run around in this planet with too much shame for, you know, there's people like, oh, you have to do business like a man or, you know, you're using your femininity to get to the top. No, that like that drives me crazy. And if some people are, I'll show you how not to do that. I'll show you how to be powerful. And (laughs) it could be ambidextrous. Your masculine and feminine side must balance out And if it doesn't, I'll show you how to bring out the masculine side in the feminine, in the feminine you. I think that totally goes with how the last few years have been with breaking stereotypes in a way, how I think for guys to come to you and be honest, like they want to work with you. I think if you look at this 10 years ago, guys would not be that open about it. And they're seeing how people are now changing. Everyone's evolving. And now they're like, we can be who we are. And I think that's what makes this world great is people can be open about it. And I love when I hear stories about people being able to share or do things that they didn't think that they were supposed to do. And then you have those people that criticize that. And I think that's just what's killing us is we got to be able to work with each other as a whole world. And especially 2020 was one of those years where people were coming at each other. And it's like, this is the time where we're supposed to be as one because look at these other countries. We're all going through the same thing, but every country is doing it differently, but they're having success. And I'm getting calls from guests that I've done over internationally. And they're like, so I've seen everything that's been going on. And I'm like, yeah, this is embarrassing that I (laughs) explain what the whole United States is doing just from my opinion. But I like how, things are going and hearing your books and how each book goes with each other and it takes it a step farther. I think it's going to be amazing. I think people are going to learn so much that they didn't know before. And I think because the book is, and, and what my goal, I want this book, my desire, my commitment and my, I'm claiming this book will be the quintessential go-to book. Each one of them, for survivors, for people that want to go beyond who they know themselves to be and people that want to never again shame themselves for having a different thought or a, a you know, a less traditional sense of who they are. Yep. And, and I see that so much and, you know, people not wanting to embrace what their desires are in business and in life. And, and they're, all, they're one in the same. But, you know, I always talk about, you know, we have the slut shaming and it's like, 
wait a minute, you know, that like that is our own doing, in my opinion. And I, I, you know, there's no, you know, yes, people will say certain things, but how do we stand in who we are? How do we stand in our identity and never apologize? Never apologize for, you know, this, this uh, having, uh, having James the youngest, oh my God, it's an education. Well, there's sis, there's Pam, there's this. And, and so I've decided this generation loves labels. They love categories. I have decided I am, I am anti-category. Like I will, I will not be put into a category of any, any dimension because Kierkegaard says, the minute you label me is when you discount me. I believe that's the quote. So once we label an individual, they are to be in that category. They're, they're expected to act a certain way, to, to speak a certain way, to react a certain way. And I am category less. I, you know, I, I, listen to, I listen to just about everything. I'm a, I'm a spiritual eclectic, eclectic. So I listen to just about everything. Joe Dispenza, Abraham Hicks. Um, Joyce Myers, who is a, you know, born again Christian. And she talks about act like a Christian. And I'm like, well, what is that? Like, what is that? There's too many rules around that. It's okay if you want to do that to build a structure around you. But I believe we need to identify what's our own personal category and how do we uniquely stand in our power in that category? I like that. Yeah. The category part, I just hate, or the labels I hate Yeah, because it's like, I'm more than just a label. Like, I think, especially, I think what I've experienced is, oh, I'm the young guy. He's not goal driven or that. And it's like, am I, am I being labeled for what other 25 year olds are like? I'm Alex, I'm this person. So I can agree with that. The final question I'll ask you, based on your journey and experience, for someone that's listening to this interview, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Uh, my biggest thing is do not fall prey to your thinking. Do not fall prey to your habit of thinking. If I did, I'd be fat, dumb, and stupid my whole life. If I fell prey to what it, it, you know, this, ha my mother died because she loved alcohol and pills more than me. If I fell prey to that, I would never feel worthy to sell another thing. If I stood on stage and thought, oh my God, I'm the stupid kid. No one's going to want to listen to me. I would not be where I am today. I, I think that's the number one thing. Do not fall prey to your mind because your mind is your past. If you don't like your past, create a new future. That's it. Design a new future. The other thing is, and I see this all the time, and I hate to say all the time, but it is true. Excuses. People think they're objections. People think they're very good reasons. Bottom line, they are excuses that keep you from doing what you need to do. Well, I'm just really confused. Confusion is you not knowing what you need to know in order to do what you need to do. But we come up with excuses. I, I, you know, I had I had a coach that told me years ago, he said, you know what? I, I've met people that have started behind the starting line, but you started about seven miles behind the starting line. Your life, you should not be alive. I used to go into therapists and be like, why are you not dead? And I'm like, I don't know, fix me. But it, we fall prey to our mind, which is our past. And then we continue by verbalizing why we can't do something because it's evidence in the past. That known past, that for me, that fight, that fight is a known insanity. I know what to expect. I don't know what to expect in the calm, trusting that there is something beyond me that will always serve me. That's not as familiar. What's familiar is me muscling through what I need to do. So what I say is create a new you. 
create a new you, create a new pattern of thinking. And here's one of the best sayings you can do. This is one of the best things, and I've done this for years. When you make a statement about yourself, add to that up until now. So, you know, I, I don't even know how to run a business. Well, up until now, I didn't know how to run a business, but what is coming to me is the answer. So consistently claiming up until now and just eventually train yourself out of very definitive statements and empower yourself. I go every night I go to bed with a new a new statement because my subconscious mind will run with it all night. And I used to back in the day, I would go to bed. I am the woman bringing forth a multi-million dollar business that serves the world. I am a woman bringing forth a multi-million dollar business and I am today the woman with a multi-million dollar business. And it doesn't become, it doesn't come because I'm a badass speaker. It doesn't become, you know, come because I'm a, you know, an amazing authentic salesperson. It becomes, it comes because I am me. I am me. I don't apologize for that. And I stand strong in, I will serve what I do best and I will bring out the best in you. So my advice would be, Bring out the best in you. Find what you love about yourself and make that so exponentially bigger than it is that you are unstoppable. Well, Jane, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You are inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Thank you. Before you go, what I will be doing is on through the email. Um, when the episode does come out, it might take a couple months because I do everything myself and I do multiple things. My schedule is busy. And so I try to get them knocked out as quickly as I can. Um, we'll get an email sent to you. We'll get all the information, links, anything that you like us to share. Um, the video will go up on YouTube. Uh, the audio parts will go on all audio platforms. And so... Well, I think I found you on LinkedIn, so I'll send you a LinkedIn request. Um, so okay. we network and continue to connect through there also. So you'll probably see how I do um, releases and everything through that. So it kind of gives you an idea. Excellent. Anything I can do to support you? I mean, I enjoyed our conversation. It was a lot of fun. I think, Yeah. I mean... To be honest, I had like an outline, but I kind of just like, I'm going to throw it away because I it was just flowing and I just enjoyed it. I think people are going to enjoy the interview so much and they're going to learn so much. And the topics that you talked about are like key things that are going on in the world today. And that's what yeah. I love. Like, we're not a show that tells people how to live their life. We're here to tell people a different point of view and things that they may have gone through, but how they could help themselves and who they can reach out to and stuff like that. Cause we all want to be here to help everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. If there's anything I can do for you, please feel free to reach out, connect. Um, if you're advertising anything, you know, uh, you know, ping me on any social media and I'll spread the word with, you know, for you as well. Sounds good. Thank you so much, Jane. And have cool. a good evening. All right. You too. Bye. Bye. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on all major audio platforms. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode and video format. What path will you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.